Welcome to the Championship Club podcast. I'm your host, Michael Casey, and co-hosting with me is a man with over 300 Championship Rugby appearances. It's Ben Gulliver. Be sure to check us out on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and head to YouTube to like and subscribe to the channel. Before we kick off today's episode, I'd like to say a big thank you to our brand new and shiny sponsor, Trojan Engineering Fabrication, part of the MFH group, and you can check them out at mfhire.co.uk. That's right. This is the Championship Clubs podcast with me, Michael Casey and Ben Gulliver. And we're back reviewing another week of interesting action. And uh, we'll start at the Stonex Gully. Um, we didn't quite know how it would go, but I think, to be honest, um, Saracens have uh, really, really stepped to the plate with that result. 48-20 beating Ealing and, uh, you know, perhaps made out, laid down a little bit of a marker for the rest of the season. Yeah, I think um, I watched the game. It was it was a good game, actually. Ealing, Ealing gave a real good account of themselves, but... Saris, Saris had their big guns out um, and they all performed pretty, pretty well, I'd say. A few of them made our, our team of the week and they, they just looked they looked like a premiership outfit, which we all know they are. They played quite like one and they just had a bit too much reeling on the day. But I think when we spoke to Guy last week, he, he mentioned it's a yardstick for reeling. They wanted to know where, where they were at, what they needed to do to improve um, going into the rest of the season. But all in all, great result for Saris. Uh, some of their big guns really played well. I thought thought Mako was outstanding. Thought Tim Swinson had a, a, an unbelievable game in the row, um, and, their, and their big guns did what they do. Like Owen Farrell was was different level. So fair play to Saris. I think it's it's nice to see Mark McCall in the press praising Ealing and saying that they potentially be a mid-table Premiership team. It's really difficult to, to know at the minute, isn't it? Because you know there's no there's no crowds in or anything like that. So that all has an effect on emotions leading into a game, but. Great yardstick feeling. We know where they're at. Surrey's know where they're at. They've got areas they can improve on. It's, it gives the league a, a, good, a good yardstick for everyone, really. Yeah, I think uh, something that would be interesting as well is how well that Saracen side that faced Ealing would fare against some of the other premiership sides currently. We won't know, but perhaps next season we will find out. Um, across the division elsewhere, there were, there were some quite uh, big wins uh, for various clubs. Coventry, obviously one of your former clubs, really, really impressive win away at Hartbury. Are they just really starting to hit their straps now, Gullers, we get into the business end of the division? Yeah, I think so. And I think um, there's been a bit of a shift in, in results this weekend. And it's sort of with, with Cough being near enough a full-time outfit and going out to Hartbury, who, who have a slightly different training schedule, um, these results have sort of skewed a little bit. Um, so, you know, your full-time team like Cover beating Hartbury quite comfortably away from home, although it was quite tight at half-time. They've managed to pull away in the second half. Um, and then another slightly different scenario is Jersey having supporters back in, um, which obviously Edgy was saying that they're severe not, they've had the longest pre-season known to man. Um, and feel, it feels like their season has started at the weekend, having supporters in and getting a good win against Nottingham. And then you, you men down at Richmond um, having a, having a fantastic result on the road down there. So when it, when you look at it, it's like the guy, the teams that are full time beating the teams that are part time semi pro. But then you know that leads us into this week's guest, which throws a right spanner in the works to that theory. So I'll, I'll hand you over to that, Mike. It gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce today's guest on the back of I, you know, certainly one of the results of the weekend up there with the Saracens results at the Stonex. I've got you down here as director of rugby at Amptill. I'm delighted to say we're joined by Mark Lavery. Mark, pleasure to have you on. Mike, thanks for the opportunity. Golly, great to catch up, mate. Yeah, nice to see you, see you, Lav. So let's let's get straight into uh, the game at the week. Obviously, I dropped you a message straight after because it's going to be one of the, if not the, one of the biggest wins in, in Amptill's history. So just, just give us a little bit of a review on the game and the, the whole week leading up to it and the, the trip down to down to Mene um, uh, at the weekend. 
golly, just one of them, mate. You know, it's um, the moon's sort of all aligned. Um, you know how tough men I feel is. It's one of the toughest gigs in the in the competition. But rather than thousands of pirates fans giving us the R, <laughs> yeah. So that obviously played a part. Um, I also think that you know they've got a massive amount of injuries down there. Some real top boys who were missing. And when uh, the team was announced on Friday with seven debutants, we just had a little, well, hang on a minute. If we're still in it at our time, we might have a chance here because it's very different to what happened last year where, frankly, we went down there and we got bullied. Yeah. Yes, you get bullied. And I think that uh, the bounce of the ball went a couple of times. Listen, I think if we play the Pirates down there for the next 20 years, we might, <laughs> we might not win again. Yeah. So, injury, no fans in there. And it was, uh, it's right up there, right up there with, with the very best results the club's ever had. Yeah, I, I, I was really chuffed for you, men. Um, I was particularly chuffed. Uh, so I'll give the, the, the listeners a bit of context to, to my relationship with Amtel. And, you know, it was, it was one of those where there wasn't a lot on the table for me personally. And we had a conversation and, right, right, let's get this done. So we got the contract signed. My body was absolutely shad playing at Bedford. I had an awful time. Uh, with injury and uh, <laughs> so I, I get we do a bit of training my first games for the for the second team at Amtour on on the on the front pitch which was an eye-opener and I'm driving over thinking oh please this is awful awful thing to say but I was hoping it'd be some sort of road you know, accident or something so I didn't have to play and that's genuinely how I felt <laughs> but the, there is some context to this story so bear with um, and then I rocked up and there was the, the Tongan guys were there so we had, you had uh, Mama uh, Mama Malotika Vili Masi Heino watching the um, watching the second team game and you know you see those boys and then all of a sudden my my whole attitude changed towards the rugby club and as a role I, I really enjoyed the match and you know the, Really, I'd had a fantastic time at, at Amtil in my, th- my three years there. But the reason for telling that story is that one of the Tongan guys is still going strong and it's a lucky to two. And I think I think the man deserves a, a special mention because of his performance at the weekend at 42. Um, and he got sort of man of the match, wasn't he? Was he was he outstanding as he always is? Golly, it's one of them, mate. And, you know, just going back to the time you were with us, we were very much, and, and you know, we're, we're already ahead of schedule. So we're sort of three years ahead of where we thought we'd be. So yeah. the challenge of playing in the championship and being that far ahead, notwithstanding the other challenges in the world, has been massive for us. You you sort of brought that line-out expertise that we'd never had before, you know, literally a, t- a, a line-out technician. And I remember you saving multiple games for us with those little cheeky pinches on our five-metre line on opposition ball. And it yeah. was a sort of combination of sticking you and hey, hey, uh, in the second row together. Of course, Pino was ex Racing 92 before, and one of the biggest men I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, great. Yeah, huge man. Drafting four with you as a as a supreme lineup technician. I mean, they, they were happy days, mate, weren't they? Um, yeah. You know, just going on to, to the point about Alecki, he carried 18 times on Saturday, and you know he's still tough as teak. He's yeah. Two years old, going on 22, and just hard, tough, professional, you know, yeah. built into the game. You know that Leckie doesn't normally talk. Yeah. Week he was hyper animated. And you knew at that point when Leckie's talking, you know what it's yeah. like. Yeah. The chairman goes quiet, people listen. Yeah. He was talking. You saw some of the younger players and you saw the side on Saturday. 
the average age was, you know, there was a lot of inexperienced boys out there. Sarri's lads, a bunch of ex-super box guys. But Leckie gave them that belief, golly, that frankly, without him in there, I'm not convinced we'd have got anywhere near. Because as you know, if you can take a little bit of set piece away, unfortunately, we managed to do that, both at scrum time, which is highly unusual, and at line-out time, you've got a chance. Now, let's all... They bombed, I don't know, probably three or four chances during the course of the day. So when that final whistle went, I mean, we might have been a little over exuberant because we thought we'd have a chance, but it's that's a great thing about sport, isn't it? You know, yeah. the can occasionally put one over on the big guy. And that, that was one of one for us on Saturday night. And I don't mind telling you that the coach trip back was was like a scene from Star Wars and that, that <laughs> The Wookiee walked into our team D2. And we, we got back in Amtel at 2 a.m. So it, <laughs> it was one of those days of days and very much uh, very much down to Alecki and the shifty pudding, you know? That's amazing. And I and I think, like, I, I joined at sort of mid-30s and you shouldn't get heroes in rugby at that age, but I played with Alecki at Worcester and he's playing Lucid, Hooker and Tighted in the same game. And it's just like, this guy's just unbelievable. So... Thanks for sharing that. And I'm glad you had a good bus trip and it's good to hear the bus trips are still there still going on because I've got some fond memories of them. So <laughs> I'm going to just, just change tact a little bit now, Mark. And just obviously we've, we've spoken about a little bit of history in, of, of Amtel and, you know, it's been on an unbelievable journey, which has been quite well documented now, which is credit to you and, and the people at the club. Um, so with the holy grail of being being championship rugby, obviously you, 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 you're into your second season now. So and there's obviously been a few changes within it. So what what are your thoughts on where we're at with that? With, with obviously what happened last last February with the with the cuts and you know it's a, it's a it's a loaded question. I understand that, but you know I just wondered if you could share your personal thoughts from from a. We're, we're elite sport in the championship. And for us, we've had five promotions in 12 years. And at this stage in our development, there's a massive market to get up here. Um, I thought Francis Barron's article in the rugby paper on Sunday was fascinating in as much as how poorly the RFU have managed their finances for a decade. And I think that they've taken a very short-term view with the, I wouldn't say reduction, they've completely slashed funding for the competition. You know, it's sort of an 85% reduction between PRL and the RFU. How you're meant to run a professional sports team with professional medical care and strength and conditioning with that sort of money coming in. Honestly, Ben, it's disgraceful. And I'm deeply concerned for the future, not just of the championship, because I think it just sets a wrong marker for the sport. If you look at the sport as a whole, you know, we're sort of white middle-class private school, you know, bumbling along on, on a sort of elite basis. We need more inclusivity, we need more diversity, and we need more people aspiring to play the game. And I think the way we're going with the championship, it's going to have exactly the opposite effect. So, you know, we're, we're here. We're obviously delighted to be part of the competition. But I think the way that the competition's been treated by the powers that be is is, uh, is very poor at best. I, I think, yeah, for me and for, for the average Joe, Joe and listeners, like, 
I've got a real understanding, but in terms of monetary value, what what, is eight, what does 85% mean to, to you as a club? You know, what how does that look? And, and what does it affect? Does it affect salaries, but does it affect the whole club as a, as a whole? And obviously, you're new into the league. Well, I, th- I think when you aspire to get somewhere, Ben, and you've worked as hard as you can to get there, you expect things to have some continuity when you get there. Um, in the previous year, we had nearly £640,000, including meritocracy, from PRL and RFU. And the year, the, the, the second year, it would have been reduced to 145 And it's about 120 this year on an annualised basis, with no agreement post this season as to what that's going to look like. So... In a bizarre way, notwithstanding the eclectic mix of clubs in the competition, for somebody like Ampton, we had it for a year, and then we had to cut the playing squad significantly. We had to cut salaries significantly. We had to cut the coaching staff significantly because we'd worked on the base. When we got up there, we'd get five and a half, six hundred grand. When that drops to sort of 140, including medical, of which medical is nearly 45 grand of that, you're talking about £100,000 to run a professional sports team, including travel. You know, in comparison to the way the, the French are going, and I guess it'll all come out in the next World Cup, you know, it's the RFU approach is very difficult, uh, very difficult to the FFR approach, isn't it? Yeah, it's fascinating for me just just sort of being sat listening to that. I don't know what your thoughts are, Mike. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I was here at Doncaster at the time when the announcements were made, and I know there's lots of conversations and anticipation of how, because um, obviously funding was up for review of how it might look. I think there was probably people hoping that it might have actually been increased or at least kept the same at that time. And I think one of the things that many people that I've spoken to found particularly galling, Mark, was some of these sort of uh, stipulations on why the RFU no longer felt that the championship was the way in which they wished to put their funds in terms of development, not just players, coaches, referees, and so on and so forth. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's a participation agreement to be part of the championship but there's no other sort of stipulations on the money you say you agree to play and that's what you get so i just wondered mark when the justification came for the cuts what your reaction was like um at dillingham park listen I, you know I don't, I don't mind being controversial as golly will tell you which is the risk of inviting me on by the way um, i've got a good edit button so <laughs> you'll need it um uh, obviously we've only sat on the championship clubs committee for a year before And when the news was delivered about the five key criteria that we'd failed in, the 11 other people sat around the table, me being included in that, had never seen any of those anywhere. And they were, in my opinion, they were made up. And we've subsequently asked to see a copy of those five things. And it's not been forthcoming. Now, I think it's also important to recognise the RFU is a mutual society. It's not a public limited company. It's not a private limited company. It's a mutual society run for the benefit of the members. For me, transparency and openness above everything is critical. Now, we've just had a Six Nations review. Can any, can either of you tell me who's been on the Six Nations review panel? No. The to the question, <laughs> completely confidential. So actually, I think my 90-year-old mum might have been on the review panel judging by the wording that's come out of it. So, you know, listen, I think we've got some real challenges as a competition. I think we've got some real challenges as a sport. And for me, working closer together in a transparent manner, in an honest manner, in an inclusive manner, will benefit the sport a lot more than the way that we're behaving at this point. Yeah. I just thought, can I 
can I touch on something that's like involves the CCC, which is the, the committee, which which represents all the clubs. So if people that are listening are understanding, there's a committee that represents all the clubs. They have the same in the Premiership. Forgive me if I'm wrong. And then there's a PRL that looks after the commercial element of, of Premiership rugby, in essence. Is there a need for that at Championship level where there's an independent board that looks after the commercial side of Championship interests? Because at the moment, it doesn't have a voice at all, does it? I I, what what's what is the noise is coming out of Twickenham, Ben, and to our executive CCC. Um, for the first time, I'm aware that PRL, I think I think it's changed names now to PRI or something, Premier Rugby Investors, have met with the exec of the CCC. Now that's the first time that's happened. So it's a step forward, and that's good news. For me, the positions need to coexist together. Yeah. The benefit of all 24 participant groups within that. You'll see what's happening in France. They've now got three pro leagues. The money is shared equally. Their participation numbers are going up. Ours are going down. The geographical spread is going up. Ours is tightening. So I think there's a number of lessons we can learn from the French. But the proof of the pudding is ultimately how the national team do. And at the next World Cup, if we... Um, if we have some issues, um, we'll, we'll we'll know where those issues have come from, won't we? Because what we're what we're sowing now, we'll reap then. Yeah. And what with with all this in mind, and obviously there's there's a lot there's a lot of negativity around the leak, and you know we're all, we're all quite good at pointing out the problems of it. What are the actual solutions to it, in your opinion? I think we've all got ideas, but like how how, how do you do? How do you see a solution to the funding issue uh, and the championship as an identity and, and its value? Uh, moving forward. Listen, I, th- I think, Ben, nobody can dispute the value of the championship. You look at half the test side who played in the World Cup final. How many of them have played in the championship before? You've probably yeah. played half of them. So, yeah. for me, that's an irrefutable fact. Edward yeah. came up with the English championship plan, which I know Pirates had a lot of input into and I know Coventry had a lot of input into. And that was, I mean, the breadth of what we were trying to carry off didn't enjoy universal sport, but 11 out of the 12 clubs were were very keen to get on with it. The size and structure of abandoning premiership academies, putting them into regional academies, having a draft system, having academy coaches that were independent, really paying attention to the development of the player off the pitch as well as on the pitch. I think timing was really unfortunate, but as a plan for the championship and recognition and a a competition primarily with young English players participating on a consistent basis, you would hope at some point in the not-too-distant future, post-COVID, that can get dusted off and we can get behind that. And it had some of the things you'd class as old school then, like the divisional games, you know, with the North and the Midlands and... Southwest and London, Southeast. Listen, I still think there's a place for the, for those things. Notwithstanding, we've we've all got to be really conscious about player welfare and the amount of games we're asking the athletes to to participate in now. Obviously, the, yeah. the 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 tech plan halted. Where did you think the main point, the sticking points were? Do you think it was simply the timing and what's followed since, Mark, or do you think there was other sticking points within the proposal? I know it was quite exhaustive, wasn't it? About seventy six pages in total. I think I think it required Mike so many stakeholders to get on board with the program. I mean, it's a mammoth challenge. Now, if you'd had a couple of years to try and put it together, and frankly, the only way it would work is if all parties were prepared to give 
give a little to get a better outcome. But you'll be aware of some of the things like 18 of the match day 22 had to be young English players, of which you could have a certain number over a given age. I mean, that would just be absolutely tailor-made for the development and the first stage of the professional pathway. I just think timing being unfortunate and the amount of stakeholder report support, sorry, it would have required would have certainly taken a lot, a lot longer than, uh, than than the time we had at that given juncture. So, with that in mind, what do you see as being next? What things do you think we can expect from the close of this season and of next season? I know there's a lot of things being discussed. Obviously, in in the public domain at the moment, ring fencing is a very, very public um, subject. Uh, the mem and the announcer at the memoritum on um, having promotion back up to the to the league. Do you think that that is inevitable now, Mark, or or, or what? Uh, Mike Gully, you'll have uh, you'll have seen the European Super League over the last ten days. Um, you know the the. the black who's in charge at Real Madrid still thinks it's going to happen. This guy is a multi-bazillionaire. He even makes Steve look poor, and I know you'll edit that out. Uh, (laughs) He still thinks the European Super League's going to happen. I mean, it's just a complete and utter non-starter. Promotion and relegation in sport in this country has been such a key part. If you take away hope and you take away aspiration, we shouldn't forget a decade ago, Exeter Chiefs played Bristol Bears in the championship playoff. They're now the two champions of Europe at Challenge Cup and Heineken Cup level. And what somebody thinks with a, you know, a, a conflict of interest, that that's a good idea to turn that off. Listen, I'm not a broadcaster, but if BT know that half their games are irrelevant, what do you think they're going to do with their broadcast money? Because they ain't going to be keep sticking it into, into PRL at that point. You'd have, So in answer to the question, Mike, sorry, I'm waffling. European Super League sends a very clear message to me. Sport is about promotion and relegation, competition, encouraging those to aspire to give them a pathway to get there. Now, what that looks like, listen, I don't know. There's far smarter blokes and blokes and ladies out there than me considering it. I understand no relegation this year because COVID has affected things. But if you go to a no relegation role going forward, to all intents and purposes, I think you just make the sport even less relevant than it is today. And I think that'd be a real problem for us. Yeah, it's... It is a genuine worry, isn't it? That if that if it does if it does go that way, it's something that dude, we almost need Boris to step in again, like he did with the Super League, because it's a, it's a joke about it, but it someone at that level, or it needs you know rugby's different to football because it's not got the same amount of people involved and the supporters, but people still need to start kicking up a fuss, don't they? And you know, really shouting about what's going on rather than. This approach where it's, if we don't talk about it, no one will mention it. And it, and that's what it feels like. It feels dirty. That's how it feels like to me watching it. I can say that as an independent person, but it feels a bit dirty to me at the minute. And that's, and that's, that's my honest opinion. Well, my view is, I think it goes back to what I said earlier, this, uh, you know, this lack of diversity in public school and elite sport. Yeah. Middle-class people tend not to go on the streets and start causing a riot and threaten to burn down the CEO's of Man United's house. I don't see people threatening to burn down Alex Radley's house in Amptill for for ring fencing. So 
for me, we should be expanding the sport, mm. going into schools, investing more in getting more people playing more consistently, chasing an egg, so we become more relevant as a sport. If we continue down the elite route, and I mean, I don't mean elite sport, I mean elite society route of private school, lack of diversity, lack of inclusivity, then for me as a sport, it might take us a generation to to recover. This is not the United States, it's not the NFL, it's not the NBA. And you've seen what's happened to their viewing figures, by the way. It's only the, the fixtures with jeopardy involved like a playoff, like a divisional playoff, like the Super Bowl, that get the big viewing figures. And even they're on the way. So I, I think I think it's 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 really important that those responsible tread very carefully because you couldn't be relevant for a generation. And that's yeah. terribly sad. Something yeah, and it's, guys, something on, I've uh, heard is sort of like a not with the latest round of, of funding cuts, but in the past when we've talked about increased funding for the league was that, you know, if more money comes into league, players' wages increase, it doesn't necessarily mean that the standard of rugby increases or that the clubs grow. So would you perhaps say that, Mark, an answer to how you better fund clubs is that it goes to them, but there are stipulations around it. And when I say stipulations, you know, we have them in place for medical, for example, at the moment, rightly so, but perhaps for an inclusivity quota, a community arm and things that would then perhaps allow these clubs within our league and at the Premiership as well, different kettle of fish, but like what they've got with the PRL funding for the community programmes to grow organically and get more people coming into the game. Yeah, I, th- I certainly believe that there needs to be more criteria, notwithstanding, we and be completely clear here, Amtil's facilities are not fit for the Championship, certainly not fit for the Premiership, but we've got a plan for both of those, okay? I guess when Pirates... Uh, pirates at the Menai as they move to their new stadium. You can't lock the Pirates out of the Premiership because there's no funding there. That's anti-competitive. And let's be clear, if you took it to a European court of law, it's illegal. You can't do that. Now, if you look where Exeter were 15 years ago, if you look where the Bears were 15 years ago, and look where they are now, that's incumbent on us as a sport to bring that, that jeopardy to figures Make sure the fixtures are meaningful. Make sure we get more people participating in our sport, which, frankly, that's how we measure Amptil. We don't measure Amptil as a professional team. We're a community club with a professional outfit, not a professional outfit with a community club. So we've got a 1,000 paying, playing members. You'll remember, Golly, on a Sunday morning, right? Yes. Hundred kids running around the place. Now we've got to get to a position over the next two to three years where two or three guys come out of our academy that can play champ rugby. But we can't sustain what we're doing without more local talent. Now, I think if we go back to that English championship plan, Mike, all of that was included, but it would have taken a long time to tap it in. But you'd hope that we can dust it down. You know, Edward is, um, Edward Griffiths is, in my opinion, he's a visionary. He's he's also uh, a bit Marmite. You either tend to love him or hate him. And Edward won't mind me saying that because I've said that to him. Um, But he challenges the establishment. And frankly, that's what rugby needs. It needs a challenge to the establishment. And also, I think Hugo Monia being put in charge of diversity, great step in the right direction. But how can you have diversity? Is ring fenced and there's a moratorium? Where's the diversity in that? What do you fear happens if it's allowed to go that way? I think the sport becomes irrelevant, Mike. Hmm. We become irrelevant. 
And do you know what? I, I can back that up because I've been on the ground. We're running community departments and it's it's not something the kids know about or talk about at all in schools. Like I can remember with Jay Marler when he got all that Ferrara, Ferrara about him tapping our wind chairs on and in the, in the, in the wrong area. Yeah. Big community loses its shit about it. But the year eight class I was teaching, nobody knew who it was. And, yeah. and it's the reality of it. Nobody in the school knows who it is. And it's in a comprehensive school Rugby is not relevant, okay? Football is relevant. It always has been, always will be. So the, the point around the community angle, and it's not, it, we have to have a community angle because that's the right thing to do. It's growing a club around that, I think, is has real, real value. And I think it's maybe, a, it's not something I've thought about before, an angle a lot of championship clubs are going down, but also one that the RFU could look to, to fund as well, moving forward. And like you said, as part of the criteria that won't be made up, which is actually part of a criteria that that, that could could actually save the championships funding issues. I think, Gully, just taking your point, and I'd be interested in your views. You look at some of the athletes in these state schools mm. that have never even begun what a rugby ball is. It's no. just we see a bunch of posh lads running after and posh ladies running after. Mm-hmm. If we can get to these children earlier, get them involved in championship clubs, see some aspiration to the professional game, get themselves to a championship first team squad, get themselves into the Premier, into the Premiership, get themselves playing international rugby, a bit like Joe Marler, mm. who my understanding has come through the state system. Yeah. Oh, this is we've got we've got to make the sport more diverse, more encompassing and more inclusive. You know but let's also look at the flip side. Since we've arrived in the in the competition, the championship clubs couldn't have been more accommodating or welcoming. And we're a tiny little organisation. And I think it's just a demonstration of the real benefit of the competition to provide that aspiration for the youth of the country and get more of them running around during the week and on a Sunday morning to make the sport more relevant. Yeah, and I think I've I've got first-hand experience in Bedfordshire, just down the road from Ampton at Samuel Whitbread, and that's a state school. Uh, and we had an approach there of, and it's it's not slightly different. We was like, right, we're gonna we're gonna give a positive experience of rugby to this area, and it's boomed. It's a huge now rugby school within the area, and it it needs pockets of that. It needs pockets of your non-traditional rugby school having rugby in it, and just a new experience for people within that school. And you pick up athletes, Tom Litchfield. He'd probably played anyway, but he's, he's just played his debut for for Bedford and was at Saints, and that's that's your one player. There's maybe another two or three coming through after him, and right. that's where you get your players. And it's he's come through a state school system. I'm a state school bloke, and I've I often feel within the environment within rugby, I don't fully belong because I'm not from a public school, and that's a genuine thing. I've I remember going to Worcester and it was like everyone's everyone here is from bloody Wellington College or but level with them and it's it's a little bit intimidating. And I was 30 at the time and it, it's it was then and there is a there's a divide in class and it's a class problem within the sport, which is a little bit off topic, but it, we do need to break that down as well. And championship is good for that because I, I sort of tweeted a while ago and described it as your championship is your public school, okay? <laughs> no, no, sorry, your premiership is your public school and championship is is your state school. And it feels a little bit like that at times. Yeah, it's a small analogy, but it's it, it's sometimes how I feel within it as well. I actually think it's a really good analogy, Gully, and I think that uh, I, I think this will take time. And if you go back yeah. to the Francis Barron report and how poorly the RFU have managed their their finances over the last decade, we've been battered seventy five percent reduction in funding. 
PRL have taken a reduction, but of course it's not in the public domain, but I guarantee it's not 75%. You know, the, 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 uh, the Alliance 15s have taken a reduction in funding. The community game has been slaughtered because decisions we've made over the last 10 years. So the way we're going as a sport is completely opposed to where we should be going. Now let's hope that's a short-term issue and we've had to make the short-term decisions because we've not been fiscally wise over the last decade. And let's hope over the next decade, we can use the championship and the community game as a force for good to get more inclusivity, more player participation, and more diversity. Have you, and asking all your secrets now, what does that 10-year plan look like at Amptil? Is it in place or is there too many sort of moving parts to be able to sort of commit to what that might look like yet? Listen, we did the Pirates on uh, on Saturday. We're after <laughs> the Heineken Cup final in a decade. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> Who's in charge over there? He's got a few quid. We'll get a few quid off him. <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to dream, Mark. You won't be allowed to go up, so you can't dream like that, mate. You know me, I'm a, I've always been a dreamer, golly, but funny, one or two of them dreams have come through, so I'm not yeah. sure I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> Big stadium on the M1, that's what you're after, isn't it? <laughs> it's funny, because you'll remember back in the day when you joined us, at that point, our aspiration was to play Bedford in a competitive game at Goldington Road. Yeah. And of course, you get to that position where you play Bedford at Goldington Road in a competitive fixture. And what happens then? You reset and say, well, what's next? Yeah. And what's next at this point? You know, our target for this year was to be competitive. Mm. And you saw last year when we walked into the league, boy, oh boy, we got some absolute rammings. <laughs> I mean, absolute rammings. Now, yeah. this year... Six games in, we've been done fair and square by Ealing, far superior side, you know, just way better than us. The other five games we've been in, we've been in with a shout. Now, uh, all due respect to Donny Michael, we outscored you three tries to one. Escape by the skin of our teeth. And honestly, you deserve to because you took control and you never went outside a process. So it's one of them you just say, listen, take it on the chin, not good enough. You go to Ealing, get a nice new shiny arsehole, crack on. (laughs) Cog took the game off us last four minutes. Honestly, they deserved to. We were we were on the edge of getting on top at the butts. We'd never done that before. So again, we'll take that. You know, Nottingham, we'd sort of got away from them the last 10 minutes. Hartbury was just Fred Carno's circus. It was who's going to juggle the ball next and throw it to somebody else and we'll make a game of it. You know, for the independent viewer, it was great fun for the defence coaches. Dave Dave Ward now looks like uh, looks like Yul Brenner. He's got no air left. Um, <laughs> um, we we sneaked one at the Pirates, so we came in to be competitive this year. We've achieved that goal, but uh, we look what's coming down the pipe on Saturday. And as normal, just when uh, you think Jersey have gone quiet, they come screaming out, smash fifty points in, and all of a sudden you're thinking. Uh oh, here we go again. We could potentially be staring down the barrel of a gun. But that's okay. what we want, and it's one competition. Without, and it's something we've spoken about with some of the guys from Ealing and, and Jersey, is you guys have been on very similar journeys over the past 10 years. And it's something that you're. you've now, re, you know, you've you picked up those rivalries with, with your Heartbreeze, with your Jerseys and uh, Ealing's as well. And it's, 
that's that's a whole different story of promotion relegation isn't it of like you guys all coming through and it's like and that's part of your journey as it is now and part of the story of the championship of those teams within it golly that's not just a championship that's sport yeah that's in this country it doesn't matter whether it's hockey it's basketball it's badminton it's golf it's about being competitive it's about aspiring to being as good as you can be it's about protecting the interests of your members mm-hmm. it's about aspiring to demonstrate to the youth of the country, come and play our sport, come and have a laugh, come and have a crack, come and try and catch a ball, come and try and kick a ball. That's what it's about. And Ealing demonstrate that, Jersey demonstrate that, we demonstrate that. The clearest ones are Bristol and Exeter, who've demonstrated that. They're now both champions of Europe. Let's protect that. It's sacrosanct, surely. Cool. You sound extremely proud of some of the achievements there, Mark, I, I, and and rightly so. I, I was looking at an excerpt of uh, some stuff that Kev Miller had sent me uh, over uh, recently. Um, obviously, your involvement with Amptill has been crucial to getting the club to where it is today. I think there was a you said a night when they dropped out of Tier Seven, sorry, into out of Tier Six into Tier Seven, having been there for twenty years. And uh, one of the reasons why you said right, we need to elevate the standards of the first fifteen was to. It needs to be better for the kids. It needs to be better for that full community that you've created. Do you? Does it gall you a little bit now that you have created and you, you know, you get results like what you got uh, at the weekend, and the kids can't come in to watch it this way this season? Mike, listen, it's um, it, it's very kind words, but Amtel Rugby Club is is not about me. It's about a committed a, a committed team who just looked at where we were at that point and being candid. We were in danger of going out of existence. Now, at that point, we had 450, 450 playing members, of which about 250 were paying. So, so there was an obvious disconnect there. You know, you rocked up to get a pint at the bar and, uh, you know, the, 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 the barman would say, that's 17 quid, it's a tenner for cash. You realised <laughs> there was an opportunity to, to, to improve the underlying business. And if we could improve the underlying business, we we took from two pitches to four pitches. You know, we've got we've we hope to move about a mile away in due course, get that to seven pitches, get it to four hundred parking spaces, get to a ten thousand seater capacity capacity stadium. Mike, what we want to do is follow the example of Doncaster Knights. You're a community club with great facilities, fully inclusive, fully diverse, and aspirational. And if we can if we can achieve half of that, we'll be we'll be over the moon. And there's a there's a bunch of like minded people really pushing to get to get that way. And taking your point on about kids not being able to watch at uh, at the Menai, if there'd been a crowd in there, mate, there's no way we're getting out with a W. So <laughs> I'll say at this point, no, I'm pleased for him to miss that one. But the rest of them, we, uh, we'd like them back in, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, and it, it it just shines a light again. Obviously, we'll we will talk more about Doncaster's story on on another episode. Obviously, it's it's one that I I'm involved in, and it does make yeah. me smile a little bit when we talk about the exclusivity and perhaps uh, middle to upper class nature of rugby union. Because I know what a fit training session out here is like on a Tuesday night, and if that's anyone's idea of middle class, it's uh, it's, uh, it's 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 interesting, but. Uh, I think what you just highlighted there, again, Mark, and without labouring the point, was that the ambition is is what makes this league and, and sport in general why we love it. And, okay, someone that's not familiar with Amptil's story in the last 10, 15 years and what the next 10, 15 years would be might not um, understand the need for keeping this, uh, this, this up and down free flow promotion relegation real. But locking it off, it... <sighs> 
Yeah, it's something I feel passionate about and something that I feel that if we do lose, um, we're, we're really going to be sort of hitting a nail into our own foot. I think, Mike, you know, what Pirates did to the three-time European champions is probably once in a lifetime happening. I said to Paves, you know, was that the biggest result in your history? He said, and this was before the match, by the way, he said, well, we beat Exeter Chiefs here in a pre-season game before. Well, that's different to a competitive match, Mike. And I mean, the did on Sarah was just incredible. Now, don't get me wrong, they had the bounce of the ball, they had, the, they had that, they had the other. Let's be clear, for Amtel to beat Pirates is akin to Pirates beating Saracens. It's that big for us. But that's what sport's about. It's about competition. It's about aspiration. But the minute you take away hope, boy, oh boy, have you got a completely different set of challenges? And let's just hope that the European Super League has, uh, has put pain to some of those silly ideas. That was the Championship Club podcast with Michael Casey and Ben Gulliver. Check us out on social media at Champ Clubs Pod on Instagram and Twitter and subscribe and like our YouTube channel.